0: Hey, what is going on? Happy Friday. Welcome to another edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, of course. None other than Canucks insider Thomas Drance. Uh, You can also read Drance's work up at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. transfer. what's going on, man?
1: Not much, my friend. Looking forward to today, though. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to thank Congratulate, yes, and say goodbye to Dave Nonus. <laughs> yeah, he's Nonus is going to join us in just a couple of minutes here. Uh, we and then will have what a are chance. we going to draft? We'll have to figure out someone to draft we, with Dimitri. We,
0: we've got to do it. Yeah, Dimitri asked me. I, think, I, I saw him in the prep room here. He's like, "What are we going to draft?" And I was like, "I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll think about I think it." We
1: should draft. I think we should draft non, like out of the job GM candidates. Oh, okay. all right Because it's a day where people are listing names. Yeah. Right? It's like that's true. Peter Chiarelli is yep. interviewing again in Toronto, and it's like. That doesn't need to happen. Yeah. So the, let's draft uh, the guys who should be considered.
0: The list of names interviewing in Toronto is is pretty interesting. Um, I also did have to chuckle at the, uh, the reporting from Elliot Freeman on 32 Thoughts that Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment is now considering just completely cleaning house of all of their hockey ops executives because they're too loyal to Kyle Dubas. And it's like, man, how things have turned in the space of about 10 days. Uh, with the Toronto Maple Leafs and their front office situation, uh, just before we get notice on the line here, uh, and I am very much sorry. Can for- I can I
1: quickly just say? Yeah, what a bunch of babies. Who Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment? Seriously, like we're gonna clean house because people were upset with the terrible way we handled a situation. It is like, not, deal it, with it. It has not. Gone it. You, well. don't want, you you don't want people to be dissatisfied don't mangle ha- the handling it, of it yeah handle it better and then come out and reveal like and then I received an email at 905 like what a bunch of babies if you can't handle your business professionally you don't get to turn around and be like stop calling us on our BS come on babies absolute baby behavior well
0: it is especially odd because like that this is all this is all fundamentally what the job of the president is of the team is, right? Brendan Shanahan is to avoid situations turning into things like this and getting to this point, and yet he's safe there. Dubas is out, and now a whole bunch of other people might be out. But as you point out, like, there's plenty of blame to go around here, and I think at least a lot of it falls uh, on Bren- Brendan Shanahan for the way things are transpiring so far this offseason in Toronto. Uh, we will talk about the game that happened last night a little bit. finally, there's a series where both teams – have a win on the board here in the conference finals for the NHL. The Stars uh, extending their season with an overtime win courtesy of Joe Pavelski. Good game, fun game. I'm a little disappointed that it's now 3-1 and not a closer series, a 2-2 series after four games to really get excited about. But uh shout-out to the Stars for... Uh, making it happen and getting themselves to game five. All right, without further preamble, now joining us. We're very excited. Uh, He was a regular on the program here, and he's doing us a solid coming on again. He is now the assistant general manager for the Calgary Flames. He is Dave Nonis. Dave, thank you so much for making the time, and I just want to say congratulations on the new role.
2: Well, thanks very much, uh, and thanks for having me out. I always enjoy going on with you guys.
0: Yeah, no, it was our it's our pleasure, and uh, you know, thank you to you and to the Calgary Flames for uh, for being available even after after getting the job. And you know, we talked to you last week, and we we knew something like this might be uh, coming down the road for you. And you said, you know, hey, if there's the right job with the right organization out there, I'd be really excited about it. What makes this the right job and the right organization for you right now?
2: Well, I went through the interview process um, with uh, Dom Loney and ownership here in Calgary uh, for the GM job and, and spent a lot of time you know, going over uh, their thoughts, the roster, the direction of the club. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, they made the decision to go with Craig, and I fully support that. He's been here a long time. <clears throat> He's put his time in He knows the players, the staff, and it's a, you know, I think it's a really good hire for them. But then they came back and said, "Would you have any interest in the vice president's job and working alongside him?" And you know, to me, that was uh, that was the right job. It's you know, it's we're going to be working together, making the decisions in terms of the direction of the team. Uh, you know, there are some assets here. It's, it's a club that probably underperformed last year, um, but there's also some decisions that have to be made in order to move forward. You know, we, we do have a number of UFA's after next year and. You know, those are some of the decisions we're going to have to make. But, you know, being part of, of a group that is able to make those decisions and try to uh, mold a team going forward, you know, it, it, it was an exciting job to look at, and I was excited to take it.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm always fascinated by exactly how NHL front office structure. You know, we're seeing even more, I think, a variety around the league in that right now and you know your assistant GM and as you said vice president of hockey operations just tell us a little bit more about what exactly that role will entail for you in Calgary well I
2: think you know, I think every role is different um in every different market and in, in this one you know Craig like I said he's got a lot of experience with the players and with the market and got a good eye for talent but hasn't uh, hasn't managed before um, and hasn't faced some of the things that you, you're you going to face managing a team in Canada. Uh, so you know, I, the way that the role was presented to me and, and why I was excited about it was you know, working alongside him and, and together using his knowledge of the, the market, the players, uh, that hopefully him tapping into mind of how to deal with Canadian markets, uh, looking at long-term planning, contract negotiations, things like that, that it was a good fit for both of us and um, you know, from my standpoint, I, the, the ability to touch all areas of the hockey operations department—from again, from decision making to contracts to scouting—that um, that was appealing to me. It, it was wasn't being pigeonholed into one thing. It's kind of a broad uh, outlook of, of the whole organization. That was one of the things I really liked about the the offer and the opportunity.
1: Dave. You've had the opportunity, obviously, to be a GM. This is your third Canadian market. Um, <laughs> how do you approach coming into, or sorry, this is your third Canadian market. You've been a GM and two others, excuse me. But how do you approach loaning that experience, I suppose, to a first-time general manager like Craig?
2: Well, you know what I, I think you can. Everyone says I'm not going to be influenced from outside, you know, voices or pressures, and um, and I I think that that's easy to say and hard to do and um, especially your first year or so in, in, a, again, in a in not just Canadian markets, but markets that are strong willed that have, uh, you know, very knowledgeable and passionate fan bases. Uh, so, I, you know, you have to sometimes be able to listen to them um, but also not let their, their passion influence your decision-making. And um, I, I think that, one of the things that's helped me this last year stepping away and you know, working alongside, you know, you guys and others was that I could look at the game more objectively. And in a market that's, that there are some pressures, that's what you have to do. You have to look, step back, and, and really, you know, drown out the noise that's coming in and try to make decisions that are best for the long-term health of the club. And, you know, that's where I think that can help him.
1: And, and, Dave, when you consider, you know, our conversations – the year since you departed the Ducks organization, um, what is one thing aside from the objectivity which you just touched on? Like, what's one thing this year that you've taken from the experience stepping away?
2: Oh, well, it's probably a couple things, but uh, one mm-hmm. is uh, being grateful. I mean, having an opportunity to work in this league in any capacity, and probably you guys feel the same way in what you're. special there's a lot of people that work you know a lot of difficult jobs some people two jobs to you know to get by so um, to be able to have an opportunity to to get back in with the team again um, you know I I think that that uh, the the notion of being grateful for that opportunity jumps out for sure the second thing is as much as I love and I really did I I would go back and do it again at some point if you know you never know how long these jobs last you know they don't last forever in, in most situations in pro sports I would go back to the media again in a heartbeat. You know, I, I thought it was uh, kept the, kept me involved. I thought I learned a lot about uh, analyzing the game, um, and I I, I really I, again I really enjoyed it. So, you know, in the twilight of my career, I would I would definitely look to go back to it because uh, again I th- I found it very enjoyable. Hmm. Talking to
0: Dave Nonis, the new Assistant General Manager of the Calgary Flames and also the Vice President of Hockey Operations for Calgary here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. So, uh, as you talked about, you're going to be working very closely alongside the GM there in Craig Conroy. And, you know, I think anyone who watched uh, Conroy's introductory press conference got a sense of his personality and how kind of open and, and energetic he can be. What are your kind of early impressions of of getting to know and just starting to build that relationship with Craig Conroy?
2: Yeah, it, it was pretty, uh, pretty easy. I mean, you could tell that he's, uh, you know, he is kind of an open book. He's very energetic. He, you know, he, he loves to have discussions. Uh, and early on, like we have, you know, before I came out here uh, to take the job, we had a few conversations, and it was clear that we kind of thought the same way in terms of how the team should be built, how we wanted to play, uh, the, the type of coach that we it, it might want to look for. You know, we may end up getting to that spot in a different route, um, but that's okay. I mean, that, that's actually what you want. You want to find people that have different ideas of how to get there, but what we don't want is to have two people that are working together that don't think the same way in terms of, of how you want the club to operate and the type of team you want. And it was clear early on that we thought that the same way. Um, I, I think it's going to be it's going to be a very good fit, uh, yeah, Ken so far I haven't found anybody in this organization or in the city that doesn't like him. I mean, that's, you know, he's got a very good personality. I think the players really, really like him, And I, I think there'll be a breath of fresh air in, in terms of, of, uh, of, of lightening up, you know, the, the mood because it was a tough year for a lot of people here last year. And, and I, I think Craig will, will you know, do a very good job of, of resetting the, the group going forward.
0: Yeah, you know, we talk so much about uh, culture at the player level for a team, right? And, you know, can the coach change the culture? Do the players need to change the culture? But, you know, culture, as, as kind of a buzzword, is an important thing for front offices and how they operate as well. For you, what are kind of the hallmarks of an NHL front office culture that's that's performing at a really high level?
2: Uh, you know, the, the NHL, uh, a management team at the NHL level, you know, there's there's different schools of thought there's some people that and i'll use the word old school which i uh, don't necessarily think that totally applies but you know they want to separate themselves completely from the players and uh, we're management and then they have the coaches and you have the players i think uh you know the more modern um uh, i think management style is there are relationships that are built between the players the players want to trust that the management uh, is going to deliver on what they promise they're going to deliver um you know that it you want to build some trust even even through contract negotiations so you know they they may not like what you're saying but they trust that you're doing you know the, the appropriate job so uh, i think that's a big part of the culture it doesn't just the culture's not just built in the dressing room i think it starts at the top and works its way down uh, and uh, you know I, I think if you look at some of the better teams or best teams in the league you're seeing that you're seeing teams that have management that uh, you know they are involved with uh, with the, the coaching staff with the training staff with the players uh, I think that's important. I believe after, after a very short time here, that's where what, what you're going to see in Calgary. I know the players respect Craig. They've been around him. They all know him. You know, and they're you're having players text them uh, saying congratulations. And that doesn't happen everywhere.
1: Dave, as you went through this process, both interviewing for the GM job and then considering the role you have in fact taken, what was the most appealing part of joining the Flames organization and what were some of the most significant challenges you identified?
2: Well, the most appealing there's the appealing part is probably twofold. You know, one one is uh, going to a team that has the desire to to really win. You know, I think that the the ownership group here has invested and uh, they've put together a a fairly good team. And again, I, I thought, um, underperformed, but I believe it was a playoff team, and we've talked about that you know, over the course of the year. Um, it never seemed to click, but in terms of the talent level, this is a pretty good hockey team. Um, so, you know, for me that was a, a real big part of it, mm-hmm. going to a team that you know, I think has the desire. Everyone says they have the desire to win, but I think a team that has really the desire to, to um, do what has to be done in order to put a winning product on the ice. To me, that was that was exciting you don't get you don't get opportunities all the time i wouldn't have taken a job that i thought was just another job in the you no know, in the league um and you know, i had some of those opportunities over the last year and and they, they weren't the right fit for a lot of different reasons this one i felt was the right fit and i was pretty excited to take it
1: and you know it it stands out to me that the flames finished one point ahead of the Florida Panthers who are playing for the Stanley cup this past season. Um, how much danger, I suppose, does a front office group take in evaluating how to make or how to move forward? Let me frame it that way with a group that has this much talent. And yet, you know, for the last six, seven years has has sort of struggled to get out of that first round.
2: Yeah, you have to be pretty careful about the you know the decisions and changes that you make. You know, as we you know mentioned before, we do have seven UFAs at the end of next year. Um, I don't see a scenario where we walk all those guys to free agency. It it, it hasn't turned out to be a pretty good idea for most teams that you know that have that situation. And you know, you could point back to Johnny Goudreau here, right here in Calgary. So, you know, some of the decisions that are gonna to have to be made are which one of the which ones of those UFAs do you want to prioritize to try to bring back, uh, see where you are in terms of your cap situation and cap management, uh, and, and then make some decisions. But your point is a good one. You know, Pittsburgh wins two of their of their, those last three games. Florida doesn't make the playoffs. Now there's a decent chance they're going to be hoisting the cup. So, you know, you have to be cognizant of that as well. This is a pretty good hockey team, and uh, a lot of people pick them to, to win – the the conference, you know, last year before the puck was dropped. And it didn't turn out. That's why you play the 82 games. They didn't perform well enough when they missed. But um, there's a a lot of of talent. There's a pride, I think, in that room, too, that was embarrassed about not making the playoffs. And that's always a, a motivator for people as well.
0: You know, and one of the things that always strikes me when I look at the the Calgary roster and their situation is it is a very talented group, as you said, and so many of the key players are right in kind of that prime winning age, right, In it for NHL players, kind of between 28 and 32. There's a lot of guys smack dab in the middle there. Not that it's an old team, but it's very much strikes me as a team that, you know, all right, this is go time. This is, this is the time when we have the potential to do something really special. I mean, how do you balance kind of – wanting to strike while the iron is hot and while you do all have all these key players in, in that kind of prime age versus, you know, you have to make sure you're not leaving the cupboards bare in the future
2: as well. Yeah, and you have to make smart decisions. Like You know, when we, I think the first show or two after the trade deadline, we were you know, we were talking about all the moves that were made and, you know, and I'm not sure which one of us pointed it out, but you know, almost every team that made those moves was going to turn out to be wrong. Yeah. I mean, they're going to you're going, to, you're going to spend a lot of assets, and you're going to be out, you know, first, second, third round, and, and uh, you're going to be sitting at the draft table with, you know, nothing to work with. So you have to be pretty careful about that. You also have to be careful about, you know, contracts and, and committing too much money, too much term. And, and, yeah, yes, you want to keep everybody, and, and you'd, you'd like to keep everybody, uh, but that's not always the case, and you have to make those determinations because, as you've seen before, teams can get easily get into, you know, cap hell uh, and have a hard time getting out of it. And, and you really don't ever want to get in that situation. So that has to be part of the decision-making process as well.
0: And one of the uh, first decisions that will be on the horizon for you and the rest of fr- the front office in Calgary will be trying to find the head coach for the team. I won't ask you to get into, obviously, specific names or anything like that or you know the specifics, specifics of the process, but what are some of the qualities that you're looking for that you think would make a head coach the right fit for this team?
2: Well, you know, we're going to look at a, a bunch of uh, of different styles, uh, experience levels. You can learn a lot from the from the interview process of of you know uh, how people react, how you think they're going to impact your team. You know, I, I think that you, you always want to have a coach in today's day and age that has the ability to teach and has the ability to to motivate uh, players. And and when I say that. You know, motivation comes in different ways, and I, I think some of the new way of, of motivating um, a, a, a player is is really teaching communication. Um, it, that's a big part of getting players to, to give you everything they've got. So you want a, a coach that's a, a good communicator. You also want a coach, I believe, that well-versed in X's and O's can change uh, game plans on the fly. There's more and more of those guys coming up because of the way the game has changed. Uh, you're getting more assistants that are involved in that. You have more guys in the junior college. and, and AHL level, I think that start to think that way, a little bit more innovative. Um, so we're, we're looking at all those. And, and again, you, you know, we want to have an environment here and an atmosphere here where, where the players are really excited to play. And, and you know, that's that's part of a coach's responsibility now as well. And so there's a lot of factors that go into it. We're not pigeonholing into one type of a coach or one, you know, an experienced guy that's got 500 plus games under his belt. We're going to look at, at those guys as well as coaches that have never, never coached an NHL game.
1: Dave, just want to thank you for your insight over the course of the year. We, we really enjoyed having you on the program. We're thrilled for you uh, to be landing with a good team and an opportunity you're excited about. So thanks for talking hockey with us over the course of this season. We had a blast, and we wish you and the Calgary Flames the best of luck. Uh, our listeners might not extend that uh, good tidings to the Flames, but we certainly do uh, to you and the organization. So thanks for doing this, and thanks for doing this all year. We loved having you.
2: Yeah, well, thank you very much, and I'm sure the, the listeners want us to finish at least second, so I'm happy yes, about that.
0: Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, they wouldn't say no to a playoff meeting between the two teams, so there's got to be some That's success, right? right? Yeah. Th- thanks so much, Dave. We appreciate it. All
2: right, take care, guys.
0: That is Dave Nonus, the new assistant general manager for the Flames and also the vice president of hockey operations uh, with uh, some very interesting thoughts about what the future holds for that team, some of the philosophy they're going to be using uh, to try to chart a course forward and what they're looking for in a head coach as well. And yeah, you just, you know, a, a coach who can make it so the players are excited to come to the rink and play hockey, which, you know, might not have existed uh
1: for the Calgary Flames over the last couple of years with Daryl Sutter, to say the least. It, that hire is going to be very key and very difficult. Uh, you know, the Flames have some of the deepest like they have such a deep roster of internal candidates, mm-hmm. which makes it complicated. Um, you know, then there's all sorts of interesting options uh floating about around them. You know, Gerard Gallant and Brunette both have the relationship with the Florida guys they acquired. Um, but you know, if you're looking for teaching, like I don't know that you look at Lafrenier and Kako's development and say, hey, like that's that's a guy who can implement young players uh in the way that the that they've sort of discussed, but then also, you know, a lot of the best X's and O's and structures coach chiz, excuse me, aren't necessarily the guys who, um, you know, provide the best vibes day to day aren't, aren't necessarily <laughs> the, the players coaches. And, you know, there's a time and place for both as we've seen with the Montgomery Cassidy exchange, right. For, mm-hmm. for both of those organizations in, in different ways. So, um, it's, uh, that's going to be a key hire for a team, with a lot of potential to be elite next season and yet also dark clouds on the horizon and a lot of significant short and long-term challenges to navigate.
0: Yeah. My sense, I mean, my kind of just guess would be that they go with their AHL coach, Mitch love, just cause I kind of think if you have the two time AHL coach of the year, who's relatively young in your organization, and then you have a head coaching vacancy, you probably go that direction. I guess the question is how much pressure do they feel to go with a an nhl experienced guy because you know this is not a rebuilding team this is not a team on the come up this is a team that wants to make noise that wants to bounce back in a big way next year
1: yeah i'd bet against that all right i'd bet there's an ex- like just i bet there's an experienced guy given the age of this roster and the stakes of turning it around um you know if you hire an nhl and a sort of experienced guy and and you give your AHL coach either an associate head coach's job on the NHL bench, mm-hmm. right? Like, you, you make sure they get the pay bump and they get considered. You still got a couple years. You know, like, you, 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 when you've got a young guy, you can also take your time um, and, and sort of season them up even further. Uh, that would be my guess. That's just gut intuition, knowing nothing about the situation beyond how hockey teams often think. We will see how it
0: plays out in Calgary, and again, thank you uh, to the Flames and for Dave Notis for coming on one last time with us. Uh, as you said, it was a blast having him on the show. Very excited uh, that he's landed a great opportunity with the Calgary Flames. We will take a quick break, uh, continue to look ahead to the Canucks off season. Talk a little bit about uh, the game in Dallas last night as well, but uh, the the Chicago trade down scenario uh it just has so many legs transfer and i know you and scott powers had a piece up about it at the athletic today i'll talk a little bit about that uh maybe some of the other teams that could be logical trading partners for the canucks as well get your thoughts in 650-650 it is canucks talk here on sportsnet 650 Welcome back to Canucks Talk, Friday edition of the show here on Sportsnet 650. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at dleamc.com. We are live from the Kintech Studio. 650. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, Dunbar Lumber, with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or our in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Hit us up with any uh, thoughts, questions, concerns, whatever's on your mind about the Canucks or the NHL. Hit us up at 650-650. Um, so we've talked about this a lot. Uh, this week, right? The, the the idea, the mock trade proposal or, or idea that was first floated by your colleague Scott Powers in the Athletic with the uh, Canucks and the Chicago Blackhawks. And by the way, do the American NHL writers for the Athletic realize the incredible power they wield north of the border, right? That like one tidbit like this in a in a notes about the Blackhawks offseason from Scott Powers can can create such a tizzy <laughs> up here in the Canadian market. Do they realize the power they wield, Trancer? Yes. <laughs> they do it full well knowing what
1: knowing what they're getting into. No, well, I mean don't underestimate the Blackhawks machine either. Right. I mean, in terms of most terminally online like have the same level of of passion i mean it's not as dominant in casual sports talk in chicago because obviously they have an nfl team and yeah. an nba team two mlb teams but the way and the draw of the blackhawks is like you know among the american markets that feel canadian in terms of the passion level and, and knowledge and, and obsessiveness of the fan bases it's like buffalo and chicago are kind of, you know, one-two. Like everyone else yeah. is, it's a it's a big golf thereafter. But Buffalo and Chicago, they're they're into it. Yes, their uh, their appetite for minutia rivals. And anyone who, here. by the way, is going to be like, what about Detroit, New York? It's like no, it's different. I'm sorry.
0: Oh, uh, your voice—the <laughs> the voice you choose for the person, the like theoretical <laughs> listener questioning what you have to say—is so good. <laughs> so <laughs> no, the good. Ma-
1: like. Mickey Mouse is like, (laughs) Surrey could support an NHL team. Just like Mickey Mouse has the worst sports takes. I don't know why, but... Yeah I mean, I feel like he wouldn't be that hardcore
0: about it so I can see I can see why you'd have uh, have those types of takes. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so you and uh, you and Scott Powers have a, a collab up at the athletic talking through the scenario And before we, we've talked about the specifics a lot. but I was just kind of trying to take a step back and, and you know turn this over in my mind. There's been a lot of strong reactions, especially against the idea of trading down. The thing I keep coming back to, is if you actually just look at it like take the Canucks history out of it and I understand that's important context and all of it but if you just look at kind of the raw value we're talking about here right pick 11 for pick 19 maybe 35 and a negative value deal like or sorry pick 11 and a negative value deal for pick 19 and pick 35 like based on the re- recent history of draft picks and the way they've been exchanged to move up and down like that's actually kind of a slam dunk value-wise in terms for in terms of the canucks and to the point where you start to wonder like well, okay well why is chicago who's in this rebuilding and asset uh, acquisition mode why would they even consider it and i think it's a good reminder that trades in the nhl aren't just about the raw value changing hands right it's about the specific needs the specific desires of the teams involved different assets and different players are going to have different values based on where these teams are positioned. And I think you're seeing that here. And you just kind of go through, okay, well, if it's such a slam dunk, at least I look at it, just in terms of raw value for the Canucks, why would the Blackhawks do it? And you kind of check off the reasons. They have so much cap space. And in fact, they're one of the teams that's like going to have to make moves just to reach the floor because they've added Connor Bedard. They're specifically interested in not just pure cap dumps, but guys that can play and guys that could theoretically slot next to Connor Bedard and help him next year, which the Canucks have a couple of, of obviously, in their, their glut of wingers. And then the third part is just they have extra picks and an actual desire to move up, a functional desire to move up. And you start to just go through it and check off, okay, who are the teams that can help them facilitate all of those things at once? And... I'm not saying the Canucks are going to be the only team, but if you're looking to check all those boxes from Chicago's point of view, the Canucks are a prime candidate. And you start to think of it in those terms, and then we obviously know the Canucks have very specific needs, and you start to get a better sense of why these two teams are such logical trade partners, because they can help each other solve potentially a bunch of different problems in one go
1: here, in one transaction. So the Blackhawks are, the way to think of them, you know that character in Guardians of the Galaxies? Um, or Guardians of the Galaxy? There's yes, only one. Don't, not don't, give,
0: don't give them the title bump. <laughs> they're just, they're just sticking to one galaxy game. for right now.
1: Okay, yeah. and <laughs> and he was named the Broker? Yeah. And he shows up in, like, the third scene, right? Like, they escape from Morag, and then he goes and visits the Broker. That's the Chicago Blackhawks. The Chicago Blackhawks are the Broker for this offseason, and here's why. There's other teams with a mess of cap space, right? Like Detroit has a lot of cap space, mm-hmm. um, Arizona, but yeah, yeah, Arizona, Anaheim, but but Detroit has some guys to sign, right? I mean, it's not completely unspoken for, although it's largely unspoken for. Um, and then you've got you know Arizona, who we know can't spend, mm-hmm. <laughs> Carolina, who's got 17 million less than the Blackhawks. The Ducks, who will probably be reticent to spend. And then the Devils, who have their own guys to sort of extend, sign. So, the Blackhawks are in a pretty unique spot as, like, a team we know will foot the bill. And a team that needs to spend just an outrageous amount to be compliant. I mean, they literally need to spend $20 million yeah, um, just to get to the cap floor. So, where it gets interesting... Is like the worst thing you can do, in my opinion, when you have this much cap space, is approach it conventionally. The worst thing you can do is to use it to simply sign free agents. Well, and I would point to Detroit. Detroit. <laughs> Like, okay, hey, we got this cap space. Andrew Kopp,
0: Ben Sherratt, come on down. Even Anaheim last year. Ryan Strom, John Klingberg, let's go. Let's sign all these guys. And then it doesn't move the needle for you. If that's your plan for cap space, it's great to have it, but it's going to fizzle out pretty quickly. You could find yourself in a bind
1: in an awful hurry if that's your plan. Well, and you need to have enough commitments that you're not, like, scrambling. Every year, yeah. But also, there's, like, still NHL players. Like, if you have to sign... Put it this way. Would you rather sign X middle six guy for 4 million, mm-hmm. right? Or worst case scenario, sign Tyler Mott and Zach Aston Reese for 2 million each, right? Like way yep. too much right before the season begins. Because there's always, you know, decent players. There's Sonny Milano types who go to yep. go to camp on PTOs. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of different things you can do to protect your space so or at least to get there to get compliant um you know I, I'd point out too like there was a Florida Panthers offseason like 15 years ago where and you can go look at it but it's like UC Okanen Dave Boland like just like 18 guys Sean Thornton like on and on down the list and it's like it didn't move the needle for them you, you're way better off trying to find the Bjorkstrand trade or the Mm -hmm. Marino trade, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you're way better off combining cap space with asset capital, which the Chicago Blackhawks only have in the form of draft capital because they have virtually no NHL players left on their roster, aside from what? Murphy, Seth Jones, and Lucas Reichel. It's like, that's pretty much it in terms of tradable player assets. And Seth Jones, you can debate how tradable, tradable that contract yeah. is. Well, well he has a
0: full no move so it's it that, that's like not really a realistic asset trade asset in any meaningful way for them
1: yeah how much longer is that deal than Oliver ekman Larsson's i don't
0: it goes it goes till 2029 2030 so that's probably like so three, years. three more years eh. just stop it stop it right there transfer <laughs> <to> <laughs> i see where this is going and i don't like it <laughs> I'm sorry I'm why do you not like it <laughs> they should be trying to shorten the cap commitments not lengthen them not extend them and add money it's it's almost two and a half million more than what they're paying oel
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean I mean I'm go- you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a Seth Jones truther and right? you're a, like you're a Seth Jones truther is what you're saying hundred percent Seth Jones All right. Seth Jones has gone. Full circle from being like one of the most overrated players in hockey. Then he signs, and now he's like one of the most. Now people think he's like not good. Yeah, people he's think absolutely. He, people think he's like what OEL was last year. You know what he's I mean? Still a top pair quality defenseman. He's a good defenseman. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't want that contract. No. <laughs> no. No. Agreed. Anyway, um, the Blackhawks are fascinating. So. I'm really curious to see it because I thought they were really sharp over the course of the last year, right? I mean, to get a first for, like, Lafferty and Jake McCabe, right? I mean, yep. to get, you know, the, the the Patrick Kane situation was a complicated one with him really driving the bus to only one team. They were dealing with that team, and that team's got a GM who I think is pretty good. Like, I don't think Chris Drury is um, just some guy. I think he's a pretty sharp GM. And they managed to pull a rabbit out of the hat there in terms of getting a good asset back. Like, they they didn't quite get Giroud the way Philadelphia did, um, especially considering the quality of the player. You know, I think the... Um, to it trade, widely panned when they made it, was as smart as it gets. I mean, to it Should be a tough decision to even qualify, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and they got a top 10 pick. Like they got Kevin Korczynski, who is going to be playing in the Memorial cup tonight. And, and can you see him being on a third pair or second pair next season in the NHL? Like very, very possible. Um, So, you know, I thought they were ahead of the game in a lot of ways. I've really liked their work. Uh, I think they've done some pretty interesting stuff and... You know, they've got not just Kyle Davidson, but they've got the baseball executive they brought in. I'm just trying to remi- remember Jeff Greenberg. Yeah. No, that's sorry. That, that's Yeah. Okay. Is that right? No, they didn't hire Greenberg, did they? Okay, anyway, whatever. But they hired a baseball guy. And so they're going to be thinking about this. Yeah, he's associate general manager, Jeff Greenberg. And I think that's. Indicative of an organization that's willing to consider these problems differently. And if they do so, then there are all sorts of interesting opportunities in terms of how you can use this cap space. Um, You know, like one thing that stands out to me is you basically have no one you even need to extend prior to 2026 when Bedard's Mm -hmm. ELC will be up and, Mm -hmm. and maybe Korchinski's if he debuts next season. But it's like you're literally... Virtually unlimited short term cap space.
0: Well, and that's one of the things that makes now I would prefer if if they're doing this deal, this proposed deal with the Canucks, I'd prefer it to be Besser instead of Garland. But like that's one of the things that makes Garland interesting. I think from their perspective is it's a three year deal. The timeline. Yeah, like any three year deal for the Blackhawks is, is zero risk. Right. It's all about setting it up for Connor Bedard's next deal. So like, great, two, three years. We don't really care because we're not going to there's like no world where we can even have cap issues in the next three years. All we're doing is setting ourselves up to be able to pay Connor Bedard and put a team around
1: him on his second contract. Well, the guy, if I'm them, though, who I'm all in on pitching on, like, I don't even care what the cap it is, just three years would be Kalorn, 60 points. Yeah. Champion. Big. Skilled enough to play with Bedard and protect him. You know what I mean? Like, you've already got Tyler Johnson in the room. Now you've got two Tampa Bay Lightning guys. You know, their, their key task is, like, teach Bedard what it takes to win. Not not what it takes to score, what it takes to win. And, uh, you know, other teams will see him as, like, a great complimentary fit. But, you know, for, like, if he's fielding a bunch of, like, five years times $4 million deals... Like, you can easily go in at seven and a half if oh, you're Chicago three for or three. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that to me would be, like, a key target. But but again, if you're bringing in a free agent, char- like, for Chicago anyway, I think character is number one. Like, don't even worry about... I mean, sorry, worry about quality. Because to really be a leader, you need to be a player yeah, of a certain and, caliber.
0: and you want it. But Glorin like, qualifies. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I think the desire to help... Bedard is very valid right like you don't want to yeah. just bring in a character guy you want someone who can also help him and make sure he's being put in a position to have success. And, and there's
1: really not a lot of guys who like stand out to me as having that like you know Matt's potential for, from a Bedard perspective but Kalorn does um, and aside from that you know this is an interesting one because it allows the Blackhawks to you know get Bedard potentially another running mate and mm-hmm. You know, whether it's this year or next, um, especially if there's like a couple of defenders, like if Reinbacher and uh, Wallinder both sneak into the top 10, well, then one of Ryan Leonard or Zach Benson or, you know, one of those top end forwards has fallen out. I mean, 11 is a really nice spot to be sitting in from the perspective of raw talent accumulation, which, you know, I think we have cause to wonder if the Canucks are in that business or if they'd far prefer to get a defender. And if you're dead set on a defender, you're better off at 19 than 11 anyway. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a really interesting mental exercise too, because I do think it reframes something that I think is worth being conscious of as you get into this offseason. Like, like, For the teams with cap space, for the teams with options, right? It's not that they have the flexibility to buy. It's that in a world where, you know, um, (laughs) 15 teams in the league or 16 teams in the league have less than 10 million in space going into this offseason. They're, in fact, sellers. They are sellers of cap flexibility. And there will be bids that come into them from teams like the Canucks saying, we'll give you Besser, and and this is what that would look like, right? We'll give you Barkley-Goudreau, mm-hmm. and this is what that would look like. Um, there are going to be, you know, a lot of contending teams clamoring effectively to use Chicago's cap space, and Chicago's going to have their choice of how to sort of figure that out. And if they are careful with that space, if they don't just use it in a really weak free agent class, I think the opportunities to actually be like deceptively good next year are are wider than people think. Like when the when the Stanley Cup is awarded and the odds for next year are posted, the combination of adding Bedard, the chance that he could be like a forty goal, ninety point guy in his first year, which I'm not saying he will be, but there's a chance. I'm looking at this from a gambler's perspective, Mm -hmm. which I don't bet on hockey, but I like to think about it. And also the amount of cap space they have before the offseason moves start to, you know, um, come down like their to make the playoffs odds are probably going to be like 25, 30 to one. And I think that could be an interesting bet, especially because I think the central is way softer than people realize. Yeah, and the
0: you know this this text comes in uh, from Brandon Vancouver. I'm the Hawks. Why should I even be that nice to Vancouver? The Hawks have all the leverage. Taking on three years at five million for a small winger from a cap-strapped team, they should barely offer a couple of seconds for the 11th and Garland. And I do think the the distinguishing factor for the Hawks is that they're not just the classic, hey, we have all this cap space, as you said, pitch us on why we should take your bad contract or your contract that you're trying to get rid of. They are that, but they're also a team that desperately wants to move up, or at least has some, I shouldn't say desperate, but a team that has some motivation and some desire to move up in the draft, right? And it's that combination that, makes Vancouver interesting from them. Because there, as you say, there are a lot of teams that would be happy to send an inefficient contract to Chicago, right? Whether it's Barkley Goodrow, whether it's Kyler Yamamoto, go down the list, go around teams that want to contend and and want to push for the Stanley Cup next year and need to clear some space. Those teams can't also facilitate moving up. And I think that's what creates the kind of unique scenario uh, between Vancouver and Chicago. It's just, there's just not a lot of other teams that are in that position. Uh, This one comes in, Garland and Brock aren't that negative value, though. That's a fair debate. I mean, I know we've talked about Connor Garland, and if you just look at kind of the raw numbers and his contract, he's not uh, that far away from, you know – like like his production meeting what he's being paid. Now, I think if you look at what those types of players actually go for in the trade market, you would still say it's a negative value contract. Brock, yes, it's a year shorter. Maybe you think there's higher upside there, but again, in terms of impact not living up to his contract. So, you can debate about how much negative value it is, but I think it's pretty clear what we've what we're hearing is that those contracts are viewed as negative value, right? So, I understand the idea of, well, just hold on to them and maybe they'll rebound and maybe they'll play themselves into value. But if you want to deal them this year, you're dealing them as guys who are have negative value on their deals right now.
1: Well, sorry. And it's there has to be a distinction between negative value in terms of contract efficiency and negative value in terms of trade On value, the trade market. Right? Yeah, that's what we're yeah. talking about. So neither of them would have trade value. Exactly. But I think Garland today is a fair value contract. And I think Besser was not in the first year of his contract, but has absolutely a path to getting back to a level where he is at least a six and a half million dollar player in terms of his contributions and it has nothing to do with his production because if he'd produced the way he did last season um and remained like a, a top of the lineup caliber two-way player, which he's typically been by the way I know he's, I know defense isn't like his calling card, but he's tended to be. A guy who you can play in toughs and they don't
0: hurt. He's never been a liability. He's never been, like, the defensive driver on a line, but he's never been – he's always been a guy you can put with the defensively solid
1: line, and he'd hold up his end of the bargain. 100%. Until this year. Yeah. And if that bounces back to to his career norms, which – so we're we're not, like, asking a guy to, like, find his scoring touch again or, like, just, like – be what you've been for 300 games in terms of your battle winning and on-ice IQ and defensive ability, your two-way game, and he'll be fine. Um, I think that's a very likely thing to occur. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, well, it's going to be a very interesting one for Vancouver to navigate because in, in the case of both players, they're good. Yeah, when the, when I like that's part of it from Chicago's perspective. There's no doubt about that, right? Like they are, they are
0: much more interested in a guy who can play and a guy who maybe yep. has some of that bounce back potential than a pure this guy's washed but he's still making five million and we'll take him off your hands. Like not that they wouldn't do that, I'm sure they would, and they might do it in other places. But they also have specific motivation that a lot of th- a lot of times teams in this position don't have. You Brock Bester's still relatively young too, right? Like that's another thing. Like they could get key years out of these guys potentially uh, down the road, if there is any of that bounce back alongside Connor Bedard. So there's a lot of reasons when you kind of step back and even just get beyond, you know, ah, no, they can't possibly trade 11. Like there's a lot of reasons why these two teams and their needs line up and why I do think we're going to hear a lot more about this leading into the draft, which is uh, in just about a month here coming up at the end of June. Um, Keeping some of those, uh, some of those principles, Uh, in mind about, like, you know, solving problems for other teams and why these two teams make sense for a deal. I want to go through some of the other teams around the league, see if we can find any other logical trade partners uh, for the Vancouver Canucks heading into this offseason. Hit us up, 650-650. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 6.
1: Everything Canucks before and after the games. Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at dleamc.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Dmitri Filipovich going to join us in the final segment of the show. But right here, you know, we were talking about the potential deal, the potential fit for a trade between the Blackhawks and the Canucks. And I was mentioning, you know, trying to look around the league and find other teams that could potentially be logical trading partners for the Canucks, and uh, this is why I love our listeners, Drancer, and our texters, because JFID texts in almost immediately, and this is great, because it removes, I don't have to be responsible for bringing this scenario up, I can say I'm just reacting uh, to something that somebody texted in, and JFID texts in, JT Miller for Jesperi Kotkaniemi from the Canes, yay or nay. And uh, it's certainly not the first time that I've seen that floated out there. We haven't really had a chance to talk about Carolina and their offseason plans uh, since they were eliminated. Carolina is fascinating to me, just before we get into the specifics of what, what JFIT is proposing there, because there's so much noise around the industry of, you know, they didn't have the game breakers. They need to make that move to get over the hump. They have to do something. They have to go for that type of game breaking talent. And I don't even necessarily disagree with that, but I also just look at it, and there might not be a team better structured to ignore that noise in the NHL than Carolina, right? Like, in terms of the market, in terms of how their front office does business. If it was almost any other team, I'd say, they're probably going to bend, and they probably are going to really feel that pressure to make that big, bold move. But I don't know if it even punctures Carolina's uh, orbit at all.
1: Well, also, it's like... The Carolina Hurricanes need to add more offensive game breakers. They added Max Pacioretty and Brent Burns last summer. Like, it's not like they disagree. Mm. It's not like they haven't made moves to graft those types of players. I mean, Max Pacioretty is like as consistent a 30-goal guy as you'll find in the NHL over the past decade. I mean, it's like him and Ovechkin in terms of the the year-over-year consistency with which they puncture the net 30 times. Um there's just not a lot of guys who profile like him. He gave them, what, seven games, 12 games, something, something like, like that? that. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a lot. It was a tough one. Um, they were out Andre Svechnikov. You know, like, if you're saying one of their problems against the Florida Panthers is they didn't generate enough height from, like, high-danger areas, well, Svechnikov sets up shop in high-danger areas. That's where he lives. Like, his area code is, like... H D A high danger areas. So I don't think you're worried if you're Carolina, or you certainly shouldn't be, about like going out and getting a top goal scorer, you were down two thirty goal guys. Right. But like if you're if you're saying, yeah, we struggled to score, well, we had two thirty goal wingers who weren't in the lineup, whose minutes were replaced by you know Nuke and Stefan Nason, and I mean Pac- we also we also had another. Pachareddy's
0: a UFA though, right? So that that does factor into it. Like, yeah, you're getting Sveshnikov sure. back, but you are you are
1: potentially losing Pachareddy. Well, totally, but I mean, you don't need to go break the bank if you're Carolina to find a scoring winger. Like, there's a million scoring wingers who people will give you, mm-hmm. and you know the the appeal of J T Miller from their perspective should really be about five on four right? It should really be that he can come and drive the bus for you on the power play. You don't even need to view him as a centerman. You know, like you can literally just play him wherever Um, if you're Carolina, right? Like he might end up being, you know, a, a better third line center for you or a first line wing or, I mean, Miller's so versatile and Carolina's system is so unique um, that I don't even think you're too worried about like, his specific five on five fit. It's really just we're gonna install him on his downhill side on the power play, and he's gonna run things from there. Um, that's a great fit for them for sure. But would they give up Kakinami to get him? I I think they value Kakinami right. Like I don't think they evaluate Kakinami given his skill set, battle winning ability, and the way they play the way that the rest of the league does. Like I think they like Kakinami a ton. Well. And I think if Carolina's calling you about J.T. Miller, you know, they're probably viewing him as a player you might think is distressed and who they can get at value or with you retaining money on the deal. So that's a really tough one. Like if you're trying to come up with J.T. Miller, Carolina Hurricanes trade scenarios, what I'd caution is from their perspective, he would be a buy low. Because they'll, they're going to have options that involve them taking, you know, like one or two years of a guy. And and Miller might be better, but how much better is he in a system where no one carries the puck anyway? Yeah. Right? I mean, you know, he, he, they'd view him as sort of like a power play ace, as opposed to the way that you and I and all of our listeners evaluate Miller. So. You know, they're, they're like a fallback option that might be available to the Canucks if they decide they have to move Miller. That's not the team to look at and be like, what can what will they give up? What can we pry to get out of there? And,
0: and yeah, that, yeah, the question for me is because a, a big part of Carolina's MO, of course, is avoiding the long-term deal going into a player's 30s, right? And that's what JT Miller is on. So if you don't even want to sign that, how willing are you going to be to give up tangible assets for it? And, you know, you've talked to I know, like, People like to dunk on it in the contract or whatever, but
1: he, he had a good
0: year. He had a good year and he had a good playoffs uh, for them. If that was on but the why, table... Why would
1: why would people dunk on it? it? Honestly, it makes no sense. Like, I know he was overdrafted. Like, they should have drafted Quinn Hughes. But at the end of the day, you're talking about a 6'2", 200-pound, 22-year-old center. Like, he's not even overpaid. And he's definitely not overpaid when you consider that the Hurricanes have 25-plus million in cap space this year, right? Like, they have so much space, and their highest-profile UFA is Jordan Stahl, who's, like, settled there. Mm-hmm. My, my, I mean, at most, he probably comes back for for a flat investment or, or maybe even takes a pay cut. Like, they have virtually unlimited cap space, which enabled them – to get Kakhniemi at the at the rate that they did, and I mean, he doesn't even need to be much better than he has been, right? Like he's a forty point battle winning no, that's the thing, two like year he, old center making five million. Yeah, it's market value, less than five million, even or just just a hair under five million. Yeah, four point yeah, eight. But, I mean, that's that's market value. Like I don't know what else to tell you. Like William Carlson's a third line center. He makes five point nine. Like the the really good third line centers in this league. And there aren't many. They're five million dollar players, like like clockwork. Yeah. Like, like,
0: again, I think I can see reasons from a hockey standpoint why Carolina would be interested in JT Miller. But when you add in the contract, I'm not sure that he would be high up on their list to go after. That's where you get into what you're saying. Like would they want the Canucks to retain something like that? So I don't know. Uh or I don't pay. know. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know if that's going to materialize. I like the idea. Or both. I like the idea, but I'm just not sure if it's it's realistically going to be it's, there for the Canucks.
1: It's a really weird thing that we're living through, especially with the flat cap likely to continue into next season. And I know the PA and the league is going to try and... But, I mean, if the PA is like, we're willing to have the, you know, uh, upper limit rip, raise a bit, so long as it doesn't impact our escrow at all, I mean, that's no in a different you know, series of words. Like, if you're not willing to pay more escrow, you're not willing to have the upper limit significantly I- expand. So, you know, we, we live in this world where a player's hockey value has almost no relationship to their trade value, which I know drives everybody batty, right? Because it's like, from Carolina's perspective, you know, JT Miller would be both their most skilled forward or their second most skill forward, and no worse than their second or third best forward overall, and yet they'd view him as a negative asset. And, I mean, that that is a sort of discordant statement, but... But it's probably true.
0: Yeah, and again, with a normal team or a standard NHL team, you'd look at it and say, well, maybe they're willing. like The, the same reason teams sign guys like JT Miller to those contracts, right? You're willing to eat the risk or not not concern yourself with the risk on the back end to get the value of the player right now when you think you have a chance to win the Stanley Cup. For a lot of NHL teams, that would be how they think. I'm just not sure the Canes, even after another sweep in the Eastern Conference Finals, are going to go there, right? They have their program. I would expect them to stick to it, yeah. Uh, even Car- with regards don't, to JT Miller,
1: just advice: don't trade with Carolina. <laughs> like, just don't do it. Just don't, don't bother. Um, that's you know, unless you're buying a guy who can't get into their lineup in at at an affordable price, right? Like, then I'm okay with it. But that that really has to be um, sort of what you're doing. I think Philadelphia is an interesting one to consider. All right, on the possible assumption that they blow it up and look to rebuild. In which case, they have a lot of contracts that they you know might be willing to exchange for inferior shorter term contracts. Right? So that becomes like, you know, mini versions of of what you're looking at with um like the a mini version of the OEL deal. Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, I'm again. I'm ju- I'm just throwing names out here to illustrate a concept, but like Provorov, right, would be a, a, a really interesting target in my mind for the Vancouver Canucks. He's a really good player, um, and has a cap hit that sort of somewhat neatly matches Myers, but it's two years longer. Right? Could, is there a world where the Canucks could do Myers and a significant asset? Like, don't get me wrong like, a significant asset. Like, we're talking Pod Colson or 11 quality asset, probably. And then you land that player. And then, you know, you you go into next season with a hughes bear Provorov, Heronic top four that all of a sudden is, like, average, maybe a little bit above average. I mean, that's a huge step up from where the Canucks have been on the blue line for the last few years.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a massive upgrade, obviously, going from Tyler Myers to Ivan Proverov. The feels... It feels steep because he makes more than Tyler Myers, not much more, but he does make more than Tyler Myers. And so you're still, you have like, I get you add the upgrade on the blue line, but you're so cash strapped everywhere else. And look, this gets back to, uh, I know we've talked about this a ton, right? If you're trying to get better and cheaper at the same time, it's going to be really, really difficult <laughs> to do that. But I just think at that price, yes, you get a lot better, but you don't get any cheaper either either and you're giving up uh, a really significant asset um for for that one but i do agree with philadelphia just as a team that like well yeah and i was just illustrating your concept more than anything but like a team that could be willing to do a lot of different things right a team that has changed management is in a weird spot has a lot of guys that they're probably not thrilled about to deals they're not thrilled about on the roster and could be willing uh to do a bunch of different things ian and coquitlam text this in uh, Nashville is a team I'd like to hear the Canucks talking to. I wonder if the 11th pick for 24 and 47 would be of interest to the Preds. I'd like to see the Canucks get aggressive in recouping a second round pick. That's from Ian Incoquitlam. Nashville is going to be really fascinating because they make all those deals at the deadline, right, and add a ton of draft capital, but that was under David Poyle. And then were awesome. Yeah, and then they were awesome. But then Barry Trotz is coming in as a first-time GM. He still has to make a coaching hire. I don't really have a handle at all on what Nashville wants to do, what their plan might be going forward. They do have... Uh, the two first-round picks. I think they have a couple of second-round picks as well. So if you're just talking about trading down, there's the assets and the the picks and everything to make it happen. And I also look at some of the. I'm
1: pretty sure, Jamie, that they just have an entire Tampa Bay Lightning draft class. Yeah, they do. They have a,
0: they have an awful lot of picks. Uh, they have that second from Pittsburgh for Gramland as well. Um, oh,
1: oh, wow.
0: what a deal! What a deal! What a going away present for the for the oh. incoming GM kyle dubas or whoever it is for shocking Pittsburgh. stuff
1: absolutely brutal um but, but nashville's interesting because they were so good when all of a sudden they were like built built around you know um cody glass and, and luke and evangelista dude and thomas novak brock besser's old ushl line mate right philip Tomasino. i mean yep. when there was just like a bunch of Guys in their early to mid twenties, plus Colton Sissons, they were super cool. um That's like a, a great foundation, in, in my view anyway. Especially with how successful they were in front of UC Saros. So, could they look at tearing it down further, right? With a, a variety of of interesting and available assets, including. You know Tyson Berry, but also some more overpriced guys like uh, Johansson. Johansson two years, eight million. Johansson is the
0: name that stands out to me, right? Like, is there? Local right-handed centerman, exactly. Six like, foot three, checks a lot of boxes. Over, pay, like on an inefficient contract, but it's short term, so there's not a ton of risk down the road. You'd have to make the money work. You'd have to be sending money back. Maybe you get them to retain, like, and then you start to get into the scenario where you're building a package and are you trading down at the same time? But like, that's a name and that's a team that I agree, I agree with Ian and Coquille. I might be very interested to see the Canucks talking to you because they have that combination of draft capital, maybe a willingness to do things a little bit differently or a little unorthodox this offseason and a guy like Ryan Johansson that not an ineffic- or, or an inefficient deal that could also help the Canucks this year.
1: Yeah. I um, I you know it's a it's a funny exercise where it's like think about a team that has a problem. Yep. And then and can then you help them solve them. it? Can you help them solve right. it in,
0: in in any way, right? And is in, just- in a
1: way that helps the Canucks, right? So it's like the St. Louis Blues have an overpriced blue line any of those players interest (laughs) yet and the (laughs) answer is no they they do not (laughs) they're all signed for like six more
0: years at least (laughs) the answer is no they do not that's a tough situation for St. Louis but that's what it is right it's like okay do they view the Ryan Johansson contract as a problem to be solved you know what I mean? That's the fundamental question. If they do, then the Canucks should be interested in that, right? Okay, can we help you solve that problem? But maybe they don't look at it that way. Maybe they say, hey, we had so much success with these cheap young guys, we just want to keep the band together going into next season and see what we can do.
1: Yeah, I mean, they should because that was that team was fun. Like, that was fun, and it makes sense to me that if you have a bunch of interesting young players, you know, a lot of them with significant pedigree or some of them are late bloomers – Um, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me that you could roll out 12 fast guys who play well together and have success. Like, especially when you've got UC Saros on the back end Mm -hmm. and Roman Yossi, you know, cooking the way he does. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I think Nashville should absolutely run it back, especially because I don't think the central is very good. You know, I mean, the central to me has a ton more question marks than I think people are willing to accept here. Like you've got... The Coyotes, who are probably going to be one of the worst teams in the league. You've got a Winnipeg Jets team that enters this offseason shrouded in uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I don't think are pr- particularly good, especially not without Hellebuck. Well, that's the thing. Uh, if they trade if they
0: trade Connor Hellebach, that's that's a whole that's different it. world in Winnipeg.
1: 100%. And then St. Louis, like I don't think their problems were a one-year... Like, that's not, that's not a Calgary Flames team, I don't think. There's some young talent there, but I think that might be a larger project. Um, Minnesota, I think, is going to be good, but we know how the cap space issue um, effectively, like, asphyxiates them, right? And then Colorado's got real problems from a depth perspective and, and entered this offseason with a ton of uncertainty around both Gabriel Landeskog and, and Valerie, Valerie Nachushkin. And they have some significant decisions to make here on players like Devon Taves that are expiring quickly. So if you're a Nashville or a Chicago, you know, for me anyway, I think there's real opportunity. Like, I won't be stunned if the top three in the Central, you know, I, I think it'll feature Minnesota. I think it'll feature Dallas. But I think there's a real opening for a Nashville or a Chicago to upset the Apple cart and be in sort of the third or fourth spot in that division next year. I think it's really quickly hollowed out. It is no it is not your um you know, older cousins central division. I, I think it's decidedly weaker than the Pacific now.
0: Your older cousins. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, there's there's going to be openings uh in that division. There's no doubt about it. And that's gonna play into what I'm just fascinated, honestly, to see how Barry Trotz functions as an executive and what he, what the, the chart he, uh, or the, the route he charts forward with that team, I think is going to be really fascinating to see Uh, in the Pacific division.
1: Go ahead. Can I, can I, I want to address a question in from Bob and who notes that the Florida Panthers, only three current Panthers were drafted by the team. And does that make me reconsider effectively? uh, Or how do I square that with my draft capital approach? Right. And the thing about the Florida Panthers is, you're right; they've mostly built this team on the trade market and through um, free agency. But I think this is a really unique story in a lot of ways. And fundamentally, if you want to understand sort of where this core comes from, you need to look back to 2010 and 2011, right, where they drafted like 20 times or 23 times in two years. And then, you know, also 2014-13, where Barkov and Ekblad uh, uh, go second and first overall, respectively. So, I mean, the the key part of this core group is Barkov, Ekblad, and Kachuk. Mm-hmm. Barkov was selected second overall. Ekblad was selected first overall. And Kachuk was traded for the third overall pick, Jonathan Huberto. Like, picking four times in the top five in five years, even if they completely whiffed on one of those picks with Eric Goodbranson uh, and end up trading Jonathan Huberto. Like, draft capital is a key part of the story. And then, you know, you look down the list and it's guys like, you know, Henrik Borgström was a first-round pick who was used to, you know, sucker Chicago into taking on the Brett Connolly deal. Um, Owen Tippett was used to get them um, Claude Giroux. Right. They've been able to be players and to solve bad contracts. So their their second round pick, Koliachonik in 2019, permits them to get off of the Anton Stroman deal like they don't win the president's trophy without that. So the story of how the Panthers have been able to go out and get Bennett, Reinhardt, you know, all these guys grafted onto the roster, you know, like fundamentally includes their use of draft capital and the fact that they had a like five or six years scorched earth rebuild um, to build up a ton of draft capital. And then really supplemented it when they had buying power that no one else had in the fall of 2020. That's, that's, that's where the real turning point where Bill Zito came in and the Panthers had money to spend that no one else did. And they came out of it with a, a level of championship quality depth that, Um, you know, remains pretty close to unmatched in terms of how many value guys they were able to add that have turned into major contributors. So there's a lot of unique things with the Panthers story. I don't think the Panthers model is one you can necessarily mimic, but there's also nothing there that in any way challenges my view of the primacy of cap space and draft capital. It's just that, there was a moment in the pandemic that they seized and it created an elite organization. And honestly, the contrast with the Canucks is that the Canucks were probably uniquely, um, like hit hard Mm. by pandemic related austerity organizationally. Like the Panthers organization spent into the problem and came out with a, an elite team around a great young core. The Canucks entered the pandemic with an elite core that seemed to be on the rise. And, cut the legs off of themselves and are still sort of trying to figure out and get that back. Uh, And that's fundamentally about ownership more than it even is about hockey operations decision-making. And, you know, I I agree with you about
0: the point about the pandemic and how it's unique in the Panthers rise. I will say a lot of the rest of it is kind of textbook rebuild, right? Whereas you say, it's kind of scorched earth. You draft high a bunch of years, you make a whole ton of other picks. And then as those players turn into an elite core, you deal from that, Uh, load of assets and draft picks that you've built up to fill out around the edges and get those impact players
1: it's just that it's just that it's not like a it's not like a unified thought right because one thing to bear in mind is like there was you know the scorched earth rebuild and we also talked about the conventional approach to free agency a host of bad contracts Mm. like one of the things that happened is the same guy who was doing the rebuilding signed like a host of bad commitments. And then he was briefly replaced for 12 months during which, you know, the so-called computer boys signed all of the key players to really smart deals and unloaded a bunch of the, of the mess. And then they reinstalled Talon who signs more bad deals. And then they use the bad, or sorry, they use their draft asset capital to get off of those deals, like Bill Zito does, while supplementing the depth in, in a unique marketplace. So again, I think that's a pretty inimitable situation. But yeah, I mean, part of their core comes from a scorched earth rebuild, but also there's a, a lot more to this specific story. Uh, As a result of some of the unique history of that organization,
0: Uh, we got to take a break here. Dmitry Filipovich, host of the Hockey PDO cast, will join us for the final segment of the show. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. What is going on? Welcome back. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650, live from the Kintech studio. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or our Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. It's Jamie Dodd. It's Thomas Drance. And uh, as always, at this time on Friday, now very pleased to be joined by our guy. He's the host of the Hockeypedio cast here on the Sportsnet Radio Network. He is Dmitry Filipovich. What's going on, buddy? Jamie. It's good to be here, man. Good to see him. Always good. Always good to have you. It's just us in studio. Oh, so
3: much space.
0: Yeah. We can really spread out. Stretch our wings a little bit. It's very nice. Very nice and roomy here. Um, So Dallas Stars, eh? I don't want to say made it a series, but hey, at least they extended it to the weekend. We'll get a game (laughs) this weekend, which we wouldn't have otherwise.
3: Yeah, thankfully. Thankfully, it's not another sweep. I'm excited for more hockey. I mean, that was a really fun game, too. It was very fast-paced back and forth, a lot of chances and shots off Mm -hmm. the rush. It was kind of what I expected more of heading into this series as opposed to the first three games. So hopefully, they've got some more fight in them. It wasn't just a matter of them kind of being desperate and emptying the tank. I hope there's another... Another effort similar to that in Game 5. Have you
0: seen anything that, like, if you were going to make the case for the Miracle comeback from Dallas, like, where would you start with what anything that you've seen in these games? How would you start building that case?
3: I mean, I would start it with the fact that I think these two teams are pretty evenly matched for the most sure. part. Like, obviously, Game 3 was a bit of an aberration. got away from them really quickly. Mm-hmm. They kind of shot themselves in the own foot a little bit there. But for the most part, Games 1 and 2, I thought Vegas was the slightly better team, but definitely both coin flip games that went into overtime very evenly matched teams. I think Dallas was very conservative offensively to start the series. In Game 4, they really, you could tell, they were back up against the corner, and they were just, you know what, we're going to go back to playing the way we normally play. And so if they play that way, I do think they actually have a chance of being very competitive in Game 5. With Vegas, how
1: much does it mean to them to turn the page
3: on this series as quickly as possible, given that Florida's resting. Yeah, quite a bit. I think the one thing that would sort of minimalize that as like a big talking point is just that Vegas is rolling their players so much, right? They mm-hmm. kind of rely on a depth approach and, and they really are using all four lines and all three pairs. And their goalie is getting into kind of uncharted territory here in terms of usage, but did not play that much in the regular season in Aiden Hill. So I don't think it's a matter of fatigue for them as much, but obviously they would prefer to avoid having Florida have an extra week or so of rest time preparing for them as opposed to them having to kind of grind through the rest of this series into games five, six, and seven. What?
1: Oh, sorry. Let me reframe this. Are we talking enough about Jack Eichel?
3: (sighs) That's a great question. I don't think we are. I mean, he's very clearly – the con Smythe pick for vegas if they are mm-hmm. to win the cup uh he only has the three assists in four games of the series i think he's been by far the best player out of either team creating so many chances you even see game four had the breakaway had the two-on-one had the two rushers in the third period where he embarrassed ryan Suter and thomas harley he's doing that every single night making it look effortless and so once the goals start coming I think the point total is going to get to a point where it's going to be like impossible to overlook it, and especially if it is Vegas, Florida in the Stanley Cup Final, that's going to become a big thing where everyone is talking about it all of a sudden. So you're right, Trent. You're uh, you're ahead of it as, as usual. <laughs> I feel like we're almost. This
0: sounds weird because they're one of the three teams left playing, and they're up three one to go to the Stanley Cup Final. Like I feel like we're not talking about Vegas enough in general. I've kind of felt that all year too. Like they've been really really good in the playoffs and we're talking about Florida all the time I get that but yes. like Vegas has been amazing this year
3: and they were the one seed yeah right Exactly. It, 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 round one was very boring against Winnipeg right it kind of just flew under the radar Just happened round two yes that, that's that's the, the Winnipeg Jets season it just happened <laughs> uh round two it was all about Edmonton and what Edmonton was doing or not doing and then in this one and, and I'm at fault of this as well I was, I was very high on the stars so I was kind of framing a lot of my analysis through what they're doing right but you're totally nail on the head we should be focusing more on the things vegas is doing because this is one heck of a hockey team
0: and with jack eichel specifically i mean we always talk about we focus so much on his offensive ability Mm -hmm. and that's elite. how is he playing as a a two-way player through these playoffs oh
3: they did a great job on the broadcast i believe last night of really honing in on this the defensive stats are are through the roof in terms of like stick checks and Mm. puck battles one and all of that but you just watch it he's using that smooth skating to backtrack as a as a back checker to break plays up to provide pressure. It's making Dallas is typically such a good rush team and it's allowed Vegas's defenders to hold their own because he's sort of minimizing that gap of amount of ice they have to cover because he's backtracking every single time. And so he's really done it all. Like it's 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 a total narrative shifter yeah, right? no in terms of like that. you can't win with this guy. He's never done anything in the NHL. Like he's sort of changing that did, all did you see uh
0: the defensive side of it coming like because it's it's one thing you know even though he had that reputation okay you can go off in the playoffs and score a bunch of points I don't think anyone's too surprised by that did you see did you think he had that element though in his game going into the playoffs
3: I mean he's never really done it at this level I will say like I think playing competitive meaningful hockey deep into the playoffs sort of changes our appreciation or like attention to detail on that as viewers as well and I'm sure playing under Bruce Cassidy he's done such a phenomenal job at installing this defensive system where they essentially don't let you to get into the home plate area or inner slot. And so they just pack the zone. They don't let you in there. And so he's really bought into that just like everyone else on the team. And so I think everyone involved kind of deserves credit from Cassidy's coaching to Eichel's own effort to just the entire sort of team model. More likely to eliminate a 3-0 deficit, Boston,
1: the Celtics, Mm -hmm. of course, or the Dallas Stars.
3: I mean, it's got to be the Boston Celtics, right? Yeah. Just because they're clearly the more talented team, and also they have all—they're already the ahead. they already of, they're won ahead, the second game. They've all, they're all—they're already ahead of the game, right? And they have Game Seven at, at home, home as well. Yeah. I, I think. I think. Come on, Tom. That was that was clear. That was a layup. Bad question. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about the Celtics. Um, <laughs> You're just transitioning this to NBA
1: talk. Yeah, I'm dumb I'm, I'm guard with Jimmy. <laughs> well, obviously, they need to. <laughs> anyway, it was a joke. Um, you don't have to take that opening. Yeah. Okay. Good. Because I I do I do five minutes on it. Hey, um, they wouldn't be a good five minutes. I just want to promise everybody I know that. Um, okay. So, what chances are you giving Dallas? Can they make this interesting in your view?
3: Are they close enough? Yeah, I think they can certainly make it interesting. I mean, it's it's an uphill battle, right? Like I think Vegas is so is so deep that they're they have a lot of margin for error in the sense that it's going to be different contributions on different nights, right? If one line isn't working, they can still win a game five with someone else stepping up. So it's going to be really tough for it all. Just go south. But especially with the effort we saw from Jason Robertson in game four, like if he's going to play that way again, I think Dallas has at least a chance of kind of pushing this. And if it gets to a game six in Dallas again, like that would, I think that would be very exciting. I, I imagine most of us are, are rooting for that. Just as like unbiased observers. Right. Well, and also because, there's no sports on tonight. I know it's yeah, brutal. I it's know. so tough. What are we supposed to do? Spend time with our families? Like
1: <laughs> I know. Come on. What, what what am I gonna gamble on?
3: <laughs> There's no college basketball on.
1: Time. I'm sure you can find something. There's got to be something. It's like I the, mi- the I miss I miss college basketball so much. The
0: ND- NCAA softball regionals are happening. I believe you can you can fire that up and see see what kind of odds uh, you can get. Um, speaking about the depth uh, for the Vegas Golden Knights, another mm-hmm. guy I wanted to ask you about who I feel like flies under the radar a lot as a really effective two-way center is William Carlson. Oh yeah. Uh, And I think a lot of people who maybe didn't necessarily appreciate his game are getting an opportunity to in these playoffs.
3: Yeah. I think he's got, I mean, he's got the eight goals or whatever. I don't have the stats in front of me, but I I believe he's got around seven or eight goals. Um, But the defensive work, I mean, they use him to shadow McDavid around 2 They're using him to shadow the star's top line in Henson, Robertson and Pavelski in this series. And he's winning all of those minutes. And it's so disruptive because then all of a sudden these teams have to totally change their game plans. They're trying to reorient their their deployment and usage to get their top players away from him. And that's also allowed, you know, to the conversation of Eichel mm-hmm. and how his line has been performing. They're getting a lot of softer minutes to, to thrive offensively because William Carlson is eating up a lot of the assignments against the other team's best players. Yeah, pretty handy to have a guy like that uh, in your lineup who can also chip in
0: with eight goals through the playoffs. Um, all right, let's go over to the uh, the Eastern Conference side of things. And before we get to the Florida Panthers, I know you wanted to take a victory lap on the Carolina Panthers oh, I, I, I,
3: I, I thought you were going to say, speaking of Florida, how about those Miami Heat? Are, <laughs> what adjustments can they make in game six? Um, no, I'm, I'm really excited to take this victory lap. I mean, I think we've done we've been doing these segments every friday throughout the season right yep. how many times have we spoken about how i really do not like watching the carolina hurricanes <laughs> I, and i think people that speak highly of them are not actually watching their games they're just they're just following on twitter basically or just kind of doing a group thing we saw it all all contemplation. It must right? be
0: so nice for you to break out though. Watch the games, guys. Oh Why? my god, right? I know, right? Just turn, turn the tables. Well, around it's, it's not around. even
3: necessarily a full watch the games. It's a, it's a look at how the numbers are being created. They're right. getting all these shots, and then you look at it. It's like seventy-five percent of them are weak point shots without any screens in front. Babrowski's just soaking it all up, and everyone's like, "I can't believe he has a nine seventy save percentage." And I, I definitely can believe it. It's, it's not. This is the third or fourth straight postseason where Carolina got done in by a historically great goalie performance when in reality they're probably to blame as much as we should be giving credit to the goalie themselves
0: yeah um how uh i don't want. there's a a not safe for a radio line from the show justified that applies there (laughs) but I'll, i'll share it later but anyways um How much... Like, we always talk about, you know, oh, they don't have enough superstars. They don't have the finishing talent. And yeah, they're missing Spetsnikov. They're missing Pacioretty. Mm -hmm. But how much of it is a lack of talent? And how much of it is, like, the system is setting themselves up to, as you say, constantly run into hog goalies?
3: Yeah, I think it's a combination of the two. I mean, clearly they don't have the personnel to really play another way. They also strategically showed no backup plan right like it was basically jamming a square peg into a round hole over and over again where they just florida was like please take these point shots and then brady jay's like all right if you insist i'll twist my arm and just one (laughs) after another just repeatedly i mean these third periods were really difficult to watch because tom and i were were talking about it like during the games over text message they're down one they need to get in into the zone into the inner slot they have no recourse of actually getting there and so they're just firing weak shot after weak shot and it's I, I don't buy the personnel thing as much from a like Pacioretty being out perspective because he's been out for two months now. Uh, they knew he was going to be out before the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. They chose not to address that. The Svechnikov one clearly hurt. He would have been a difference maker in this series in particular with his physicality and his ability to drive to the net. And that one hurts. That that injury happened after the trade deadline. So, I don't know. I, I think they... I never want to panic about postseason defeats, and they, don't, they certainly don't need to blow it up or anything, right? They won a lot of games. They've been successful playing this way. They made the Eastern Conference final again for, what, the fourth time in seven years or something. But to get to the next level, get over the hump, and actually meaningfully compete for a Stanley Cup, they, they definitely need more skill in their lineup. I want to bring it
1: back to the Western Conference, but in the context of a player in the East. <laughs> okay. Why? Why do you guys always make fun of me when I'm not there? By the way, I can like tell you guys are like scoffing at my questions just because I can't pick up the vibe of your actual in-person conversation. We were debating in the last segment whether yes, Barry Kotkaniemi is a bad contract at mm. four point eight, right? In my view, anyway, is that's roughly market value for like a good third line center, which which I consider him to be. And so I want to ask you this in the context of. A Vegas player who actually plays in their top six right now but is probably like uh, valued as a third line center around league because Chandler Stevenson's going to be up Mm -hmm. and you'd obviously bet the over on five million on his next contract right yeah yeah I think I think so
3: why and how good is he is that going to be a good deal for the team that signs it I mean it would depend on the specifics of it especially in terms of term. Yeah. He's perfect for this Vegas Golden Knights team. He's also such a fantastic complement to Mark Stone because what Mark Stone does so well is like knock pucks down or take the puck away from the other team and then instantly turn around and make a pass up up the ice and Stevenson skates into it and so they really gel together that way I think if Stevenson was playing in a situation with a worse winger that wasn't able to distribute the puck to him and he just had to do all the heavy lifting himself, I think it would look entirely different. So I'd be worried about you know paying a premium for him if I was a different team without a Mark Stone uh, to pair with him. But if it's a situation where he's staying in Vegas and he's continuing to play this role, then I think he'll continue to be as effective as he's been so far.
1: With Bobrovsky versus Kachuk for the Conn Smythe. Mm. who would you vote
3: and why I would I would vote with like out any hesitation for Matthew Kachuk I think I'm fighting an uphill battle there because Mm -hmm. it seems like everyone has already decided that this story of Bobrovsky's reclamation and coming back from being benched to end the season to start the playoffs to this sort of a save percentage and winning all these games in a row is too too juicy from like a writer-slash-media-storytelling perspective to overlook. I just think that while he's been fantastic and certainly above what our expectations should have been based on his past few seasons, he wasn't nearly as dominant as those save percentages would indicate against a team like the Hurricanes. While Kachuk has embodied everything that's made this Panthers team so successful from being clutch to being a dominant forechecker to winning all these battles in front of the net, and then all of the overtime goals and heroics as well against Carolina. I just don't understand how we can overlook that for Bobrovsky's save percentage. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm in the Kachuk camp. I'm not sure how you guys feel, but I think that's kind of in the minority.
0: Yeah, my stance is, like, Bobrovsky's been really good. I think it's getting a little carried away, even with the save percentage, but also even the, you know, goal save above expected. I know yes. I've heard you mention this, yeah. I think, even on the show right. with us last week. But even, like, it was one thing against the Hurricanes. I know there was a game, I forget which game it was, against the Leafs even. And it was like, he saved, like, six goals above expected. I was like, no, he didn't. Yeah. He absolutely did not. It's like, yeah, they had some good chances in yeah. the third period, but not every chance is going to go in. And I think we're just getting a little, like, they It's kind of a monkey's paw situation because it's like, I wish people paid more attention to the advanced stats
3: in hockey. And then it's like, ah, this one, I don't know if
0: this is the one to be buying into right now. Yeah, the
3: Panthers defensively have done a fantastic job of boxing out in front of him and making sure that he can just... Focus all of his attention yeah. on just being a one-on-one against the shooter. Now, to his credit, he's making those saves, and he's also not really giving up yeah. bad goals. Again, I don't want it to be like he's been—he hasn't been good or anything. No, but he's been still the
0: best. Go- he's make, been the best goalie. You of still post have season. to be really good to have the stats that he has. Yes. It's just—it's not like a supernatural <laughs> scenario. I know.
3: And and the thing with Kachuk is it's not just the clutch or or, or the goals he's scoring in these big moments. You look—he's dominating when they're on the ice, right? When yeah. his line's on the ice, they're completely tilting it even against the Hurricanes where they were the inferior 5-on-5 team. And he's doing it playing with Nick Cousins and Sam Bennett. It's not like he's doing it playing with Barkov yeah. and Verhage. Like he's carrying one of the best lines in hockey with two guys who you never would have thought were in that status before this.
0: And I wanted to ask you about Kachak and specifically the forechecking. I know you had a, a video, like a, a mm-hmm. mixtape, of yep. all some of his great forechecking and playmaking abilities. And specifically with that line, like we've talked a lot about how aggressive the Florida forecheck is. How did, What does he do that kind of unlocks that with those players specifically and allows it to be so effective?
3: Yeah, his anticipation is really good. I mean, they basically just send Sam Bennett as the first forechecker in to just bull rush the, the opposing defensemen and, yep. and, and at times just recklessly <laughs> throw them. his body. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so be it. If he has to take them out, he has yep. to take them out. But that's happening. And then Kachuk essentially just sort of like a good safety in the NFL just reads where where the where the puck is going to go and then jumps that route and makes that play and then they close off the walls and then they're so good similar to what i was saying with stone about instantly turning that turnover into a scoring chance and that's what they've done to all three teams they've played so far this postseason um i want to we we presented the idea of drafting gm
1: candidates earlier in the program but okay. i want to change what we're doing okay on the fly
0: you want to reframe Are it you go-
1: are you guys okay with that?
0: I did want to read this text because you started a question with just the word what, and then you said, I want to reframe it. And Chris and Duncan texts in, how do you reframe the
3: word what? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Anyways, so you're reframing the draft. That's fine. Go ahead.
3: He's reframing it in his own mind. Yes. He's not, or, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I don't remember. But, well, sorry. The question was No, 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 no. going <laughs> to be. What more does Jack Eichel have to do to be talked about? Okay. Like Matthew Kachuk. Right. And then I was like, let me reframe this and not put it in opposition. Sure. So that was fair, right? Mm -hmm. Totally fair. Reasonable? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's draft ways to reframe the word what? (laughs) Um, No. Why don't we do something? You and I had talked about this earlier in the week, Jamie. Let's draft next season's Florida Panthers candidates, by which we mean playoff disappointments this year who could break through next season. All right. You go first, Jimmy. Me go first? All right. Draft
0: music. I like it. All right. Playoff disappointments this season who could break through next season. Uh, I'm going to go with the Edmonton Oilers. I just feel like Drysidle, McDavid, they're going to break through at some point. At some point, it's going to be their year. Yeah, there's questions. Yeah, you can ask questions about the front office and how they do business, but uh, I'll, I'll bet on the talent of McDavid and Dreisaitl
3: with the first pick. I like it. I like it. Should I go second? Go for it. All right, I will go with the New Jersey Devils because I feel like their loss to the Hurricanes was not representative of how good they actually are. Round one against the Rangers was their Super Bowl. They won that in a very physically and emotionally taxing Game 7, and then just we're going to lose no matter what to Carolina. I think next year they're going to be better than ever, and I think they're going to go on a long run. So I'm going to pick the New York Rangers. I think that's the
1: right third pick at this point. Although I think the Devils was a was a really good pick, and I was hoping they fell, uh, but I think the Rangers integrating Lafreniere and Kako, who have become massively underrated, um, and changing coaches, I think that's going to give them a, another gear, particularly if they hire a, a more detailed structural coach. Um, can I pick the Hurricanes? Are they a playoff disappointment after the sweep? I
0: think, I think because it was a sweep yeah. and because they have the history sure. of sweeps at that round, I think it qualifies. It's kind of ridiculous yeah. that they were a Final whoa, Four whoa, team.
3: Jamie, don't call it a sweep. Rod Brindamore yeah, wants it to be happen. clear. they That's did They did lose four games in a row without winning any, but it was not, not a Not a sweep.
1: But I think it qualifies.
0: The, I
3: will allow
1: it. His best argument isn't how well the Carolina Hurricanes played. By the way, it's that they played an additional game in Game 1.
3: Like it did take... So they lost five the Florida
1: Panthers. Yeah, well I'm just saying it it's not like they got eliminated in twelve periods sweep.
3: (laughs) This wasn't your typical (laughs) sweep. It was much worse. It was much worse than that.
1: (laughs) We played sixteen periods of hockey. Um, all right. So you took New York and Carolina. I'm taking Carolina. I think we saw against the Devils that this team will eventually break through offensively one year. Like just like other teams need to get the hot goalie. The Carolina Hurricanes just need to get the hot finishing. And I do think that being down two and a half top line wingers um, is causing us to focus too much on their need for additional finishing ability or a systematic overhaul. Hmm. I think they're going to be fine. I think they're going to be, um, you know, in fact, I'm surprised they made it as long as they did in the playoffs given their offensive absences.
3: Okay. I'm going to loosely interpret the the question of disappointing and go with the Colorado Avalanche because they were mm. the defending champion. They lost in round yep. one to a second-year team, so I think that is disappointing. I think, they're gonna, I think this is going to be a very aggressive summer for them, right? It's the last year that they have Devon Taves at like 50% of what he's going to make after this. I think they're going to go spend that Gabriel Landeskog money that opened mm. up on a really good second-line center. They're going to reload, and so I think the Colorado Avalanche are going to be my Stanley Cup pick next season. Fun.
0: All right. Can I take a team that didn't make the playoffs? Absolutely. It, absolutely. All right. I'm going to go with the Calgary Flames then. Like, we talked about this. If we're if you're trying to Over ever, the Maple Leafs? Maple Leafs? Trance, have you been following what's happening? They're going to panic yeah, trade. How is this
3: disappointing? They also had the best result they've had in yeah, like 20 that's years. that's true.
0: Did you see how happy they were? They weren't disappointed <laughs> at all. Yeah, they weren't a playoff disappointment. That's a good thing. <laughs> now I'm going to go with the Calgary Flames. Like, we talked about this yesterday, right? Everyone's trying to find the next Florida Panthers... The next Vegas Golden Knights, to me, like that has a chance to be Calgary. Tons of things go wrong. You miss the playoffs. You make a coaching change. You still have a ton of really, really good players. Uh, plus, they've got our boy Dave Notis in the front office now, go. Trance. It's uh, it's yep. looking rosy for Calgary. But yeah, like the Leafs were the other logical option. But I think there is much more potential for a disastrous, dysfunctional summer from Toronto than there is from Calgary.
1: And then we'll auto-draft the next round, and Dimitri gets Winnipeg. That's too bad. Sorry, bud. Ooh, that's
0: tough. <laughs> no, no one taking Boston. No one taking the Tampa Bay Lightning. No one should take Boston, though. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm just saying, listing some of the notable teams uh, that were not not selected. <laughs> were the LA Kings a playoff disappointment this year? Mm-hmm. And they um, lost in the first round. I don't, but, think, but but the to the, I don't think so. Yeah,
1: I think yeah. they put up a good fight. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually th- thought they come out of the playoffs – looking pretty good mm-hmm. like I thought they played better than I would have expected yeah to be totally honest with you like I thought they were a bigger threat to Edmonton than I would have assumed going in all right hey, that was a good draft it was congratulations for reframing it Drancer. I liked that one thank you <laughs> I
0: enjoyed it you did it uh thanks to everyone congratulations
1: for to Dimitri on being high on the Winnipeg Jets <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> thanks for listening everyone have a great weekend uh,
0: enjoy the game this week we will be back on Monday you've got it right here on Sportsnet 650